Welcome back to the Acral Files. The American College of Real Estate Lawyers was founded in 1978. During its 44-year history, it has grown to a national organization with more than 1,000 distinguished real estate practitioners, fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment in real estate. Having completed our first series of podcasts with founders of the college, we continue now with individuals who played an important role in the development of the college and the growth of the real estate legal industry to talk about their observations about, about the past and to share their insights for the benefit of future generations of real estate lawyers. Today, I am most pleased to welcome my very good friend and past ACRO president, Mike Rubin. Hello, Michael. Hello, Jay. I'm flattered to be asked to be part of this podcast. Well, we're flattered to have you. So, Michael, there, there's lots to talk about on, on all you've done, both in the legal profession, in the in the writing world, and, and many things that you've been involved with. But let's let's try to start a little bit, sort of back in the beginning, and tell us a little bit about your early days. I think you grew up because it's it's so much part of your DNA in in Louisiana. But tell us a little about your early years and where you grew up and what your interests were. I, I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My father, when I was a young person, was a lawyer. My mother was a writer and a poet. In fact, when it came time for birthdays, I did not get a birthday card. She would write me a haiku for my birthday. I have one brother who's also a lawyer. I have a grandfather who was a lawyer. And I was growing up, there were two things, Jay, I knew I did not want to be. And that was a lawyer, like my father, and a professor. He had also been an adjunct professor. And uh, my career has come full circle because I'm both. Okay. But you you ventured out of Louisiana for college. Right. I went to Amherst College. I took the, We took the college trip up and down the East Coast, and I got to Amherst. And for reasons I cannot explain, it felt right. And I applied early admission, and that's where and I did went. You, did, did you enjoy your years up there? And did you feel like you were the boy from the south, up north, and out of your element? I loved it. I, I thought uh, I, I loved being the, the intellectual challenge of the college. I loved the beauty of the Berkshire Valley. And I met my wife, Anne, who went to Smith uh, the first week of college, and we married the week he graduated. So I guess that was a pretty good place to be for a few years. Absolutely. And did you go, what did you do after you graduated Amherst? You were straight back to Louisiana? Well, I, it, actually, I, I had a jazz band in college, and I started playing jazz professionally at 16. I was playing four nights a week in college with my band, and we thought we were going to go to New York and be musicians. Uh, but it turns out that three of them had uh, drawing short numbers in the draft, and I had a medical exemption. So I thought, well, I'll go to law school, and we'll regroup after uh, afterwards, and we'll all get back together in New York. Never worked out. So that's why I went to law school. I thought I would go to law school in Louisiana because I thought I might want to retire there. I didn't want to go back and live there, but I thought I might want to retire in Louisiana. I wanted to know that strange civil law 
and all the people who were involved in that were at LSU Law School primarily, although Tulane did some teaching in that regard, as in Southern and Loyola, and uh, came to LSU and never left again. And is Anne from Louisiana also? Anne is from Boston. Now, those people who meet Anne and uh, talk to her think she has a distinct Southern accent. She actually was born in New Bedford and was raised in New Bedford. She used to park a car, count one, two, three, four. Uh, but she came to Louisiana and has now developed a stronger Southern accent than I do. Yeah, she's, she's clearly been converted. No, no question. Well, that, that's great. So you, so you came back to law school. You obviously continued playing piano, didn't I? Also read that you played played a little bit in the French Quarter. When I was in, I did not play in law school or afterwards. But yes, when I was sixteen, I started playing in the French Quarter professionally, and I played professionally in the French Quarter when I was sixteen throughout college in the summers. So when you're in law school, you're obviously much more than just a real estate lawyer. As I, I've known you for many years and known all the interesting things you've done on the appellate. Um, circuits and everything else, but what what drew you and when did you start thinking about real estate? I backed into it, uh, Jay. Uh, the year I graduated law school, I went to the dean of the law school and I said, think, I think I might like to teach. And he said, well, that, that's great, Mike. It's wonderful. There are some courses that we have. What would you like to teach? And I started naming courses. And each time I named the course, he said, that's a great course. I think you'd do wonderful in it. But you know, that's unavailable because it's a freshman course or somebody else is teaching it. It turns out after about 15 minutes that there were only two courses that were available. One was the real estate course in Louisiana and one was the workers' comp course. And I knew nothing about workers' comp and I knew very little about real estate, but I liked the civil code and it was a real estate civil code course. So I said, I'll teach that. And so I started teaching it. I was, when I started practicing, I was a tax lawyer and I quickly discovered that I didn't like tax and tax didn't like me. So, uh, in the law firm I was with, they started giving me all the research involving real estate and finance because I could do it faster because I was teaching it. And then the RTC came in and closed down the SNLs, and I became an RTC uh, outside lawyer. And then I litigated that. I took those up on appeal. So I backed into real estate. So, so you always combine from the beginning you, your interest in trial, litigation, appellate law, and real estate. Right. And did you, was your first law firm the same law firm you're at today? No, I, I was the, I joined what I thought was a huge, immense, very large, established law firm of 12 lawyers. Uh, I was the 13th lawyer in that firm. And um, I was there until I was 33 years old. And I had an opportunity to form my own firm. There was a bank in town that said, if you formed your own firm, we'll give you all the business you can handle. So at 33, I formed a firm with six other people. Uh, a month later, the people who hired me were fired by the bank. Uh, but uh, the bank uh, remained as a client, and uh, we prospered. We grew the firm from seven to 30, to seven to 27 lawyers. And then we merged with the McGlinchey firm in 1993. Wow, fascinating. What, um... What were some of the challenges of, of building that law firm as you look back? Well, the first challenge was when, they, when the people who hired us were fired. We had all signed mortgages on our home, second and third mortgages, and borrowed more money than we had ever known existed. And the question was, how do we feed our families? And, and uh, in fact, none of the lawyers took a salary for the first six months, and we paid the staff. Uh, 
but we prospered and it was great. It was, it was a it was a buying experience as you might imagine. <laughs> I'm sure. So around 1986, I think, you joined the college or were elected to the college. Tell us about, you know, what did you know about ACRO beforehand and how you got involved and 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 what were some of your observations were from back then? I was nominated by some Louisiana practitioners who knew me. I did not know about the college. I did not know what it did. I did not know I was being nominated. When I got the acceptance, I had to ask them, what was this about and should I join? Uh, and they said yes. And uh, from the first moments that I went into the college, I was amazed at the quality of the lawyers and the quality of the CLE. Now, I was lucky at the time. I was 36. And many of the college members, as you were, were in their 30s and 40s. And they weren't people my current age and your current age. So when you walked into the room, you were surrounded by essentially your peers. And not only did, was it a great experience to uh, have the CLE and the education and to hear all of these detailed parts about the law that I hadn't thought I knew but didn't know in any detail and things I didn't know at all that I learned, but also to develop friends that I've had for a lifetime. And when did you... I mean, of course, everybody who's will listen to this who's a member of the college well knows your amazing contributions. We can talk about when you were president, but your lectures on ethics and multi-state transactions are legend for many reasons, not the least of which is the music. Tell us how you got started doing that. It was actually an acro meeting. Uh, there was an acro meeting in Atlanta, and I was asked with another lawyer to give a talk on negotiations and ethics in real estate. And I knew very little about it, although my father, who was a judge at the time, taught a course in ethics. In fact, he taught the first course in negotiations in the country. Um, and so I devised a talk with a PowerPoint, and I had the audacity to close by singing at the piano. Uh, and uh, they didn't throw hard fruit or soft objects at me, so I figured that was on. So that was the first Mike Rubin lecture with music. First one. How, how blessed we were to be the beneficiaries of that in Atlanta and many, many times thereafter. And, and your, your creativity is without you know, measure from anybody who could be as good. But you, you've obviously put enormous efforts into that and, and, and up and updating that and teaching us. And we've been the beneficiary at ACRO and ICSC and lots of other places. Um, how do you how do you go about getting as good as you've gotten at that and keeping it not just entertaining, but obviously educational and of great value to your listeners? Well, first off, I don't want to talk about a topic that I don't like. So, I mean, the fact that, that I'm doing this means that I enjoy those topics and enjoy the research. Uh, my wife is a tele is a retired television producer for public broadcasting, and she and I work on the visuals so that uh, those who have seen it know that it's, if I say PowerPoint, that's really the wrong impression. It's more like animation. Uh, nothing is on the screen more than three to seven seconds without something else happening. Lots of images, lots of stuff going on. And so it's a matter of relating that to the topic and keeping the, the people interested. But my goal as a speaker is to make something happen on the screen so frequently that you don't have time to look at yourself. And, and you succeed. 
Okay, well, tell us, you know, you've been involved in lots of organizations, both, you know, the obvious ones, ABA, ACRO, ICSC. You've also been involved in ones that people don't know you as well, Louisiana Bar Association and the Southeastern Bar Association. How would you compare those kinds of organizations and the sort of benefits that you've gotten from them? Each each organization has its strengths. Uh, Each organization has its goal and mission. I think the unique thing about ACRO is twofold. It's not a referral organization. It's not a, you get referrals out of it, but you don't join it to get referrals. You don't hand out your business coach. You join ACRO and you find two things. First off, the quality of the CLE is just extraordinary. It's higher than any other organization I've, I've ever joined or been in. Uh, and secondly, the, the camaraderie and the friendships uh, are long and deep, and it's amazing uh, that that happens. I mean, ACRO has grown over the years, and we just had the meeting uh, recently in Chicago, and essentially a third of the college showed up. I mean, that's that's an amazing thing for an organization these days, which meant that people find value in it and get value out of it. Agreed. Um, okay, well, let, let's pivot a little bit from Acro and talk some about your, you know, experience and observations. You've been practicing for a long time. I think maybe just a year or two longer than me. Um, you've seen lots of changes in the industry. Um, you know, what what do you think some of the um, major changes have been over the last five, 10 years in the legal industry? I don't think I have any insights that add to those that Bill Dunn and Steve Callen, those others that you've interviewed and Morty. Uh, I think it's, become more of a business. I think that's that's an issue. It has less of an emphasis on, or at least young people are less interested in doing something that doesn't have an immediate return. They don't understand, I think, the need to give back. And that by giving back, by giving speeches and by joining organizations that not only you better yourself, but you expand your horizons. I mean, if we all practice in, in one area all the time, which most of us do, the people that we interact with are limited in, in the number of people that we interact with. And the topics we deal with tend to be roughly in the same area. So you don't have a chance to expand your horizons and talk about issues and meet people who do things differently than you do. And that's something that Apple does, but at a very high level. There are other organizations that have those up, have a real estate focus. But ACLA does it at a very high level and demands high level of involvement. And I think that's great because you can't sit by passively in ACLA. If you're in ACLA, you need need to continue to give back and and, and speak and run committees and serve. Well, what do you think the major challenges? The industry obviously has evolved and changed a lot, um, both technology and, and a lot of other things that we've all I've been dealing with over the years, um, and and you you've addressed some of the changes and how people look at it and what they want to get out of it when they start practicing. What do you think the challenges are going forward? I think there there's several. One is the increasing you talk about technology, the increasing use of technology, the kind of rote work that you and I did as young lawyers on documentation and putting things together and assembling them. And, and evaluating them are going away. That's going to go to an AI system. And there's no need anymore to do the kind of detail work we used to have coteries of young lawyers 
working on overnight and, and, and studying. Secondly, because of technology, the kind of things that you and I did as young lawyers, which is we would go to closings and there would be a free closing and you'd spend two days and there'd be papers all over the place and you'd negotiate the papers and retype them and finally you'd have the closing. And then there'd be a dinner afterwards at which you have lots of food and wine and you tell each side how they took advantage of you and you made friends across the table. Those days are gone. We have closings that are electronic. We never meet people Three-dimensionally, we have lots of two-dimensional meetings on Zoom, but we don't have a three-dimensional relationship. And the coffee that goes afterwards or the glass of wine that goes afterwards or the dinner or the drink or the breakfast that go with all that. So that you don't have a chance to develop those kind of close relationships that you and I developed with people across the table, people that we met for the first time on the other side of the deal who became friends. Uh, and I think the third thing that's happening is the fact that law has become too expensive for the average person. Uh, you know, the, the kind of work that, that I did originally, home loan closing, most firms don't do anymore. I mean, the title companies do them. It's, we've become too expensive for the average person and we have not provided what the medical had, profession had, which is essentially paraprofessionals. I mean, if I get sick this weekend, I don't want to wait till Monday to go to my doctor. I want to go to the urgent care clinic and have the nurse practitioner take care of me. We don't have that equivalent in the law. We don't have paralegals who are available to do that. And we are very resistant as a profession to doing that. And until we change that, I think we're going to come more and more of an elite group that caters to an elite set of clients. And I think that's a bad thing for the profession and a bad thing for the country. So I, I, I will ask you, you know, which, if, if we think that the, the, the situation today is better or worse than it was 15 or 20 years ago, I'll ask you how you mentor and what you tell and advise and coach younger lawyers, both in the firm and, and outside the firm, given what the lay of the land is today. Uh, thank you. So I, one of the things I really enjoy is the mentoring process. And like your firm, we're, we're in 16 states, 13 cities. So we have the same issue that, that any multi-state firm has, which is how do you build a sense of firmness uh, and camaraderie and how do you do mentoring? And I do a lot of it on Zoom, but I, I have kind of a couple of mantras that I say. First off is that if somebody asks me for a form, I say, you cannot have it. I will not give you a form because you don't know what the form was created for, who it was created for, and how it was negotiated. I want you to go out and I want you to do the research and you tell me what has to be in the form, what we need to avoid, what cases and things we have to contract for. And once you have the list, then I'll give you the form. And then you can see whether the form fits the list or not. Secondly, the answer is we don't, we should never write contracts for the other side. And you ask people what, why you write a contract, people say, well, I write a contract to memorialize the intent. Yes, I want to state what our intentions are. Yes, I want to be able to enforce it. Yes, but where do you enforce it? Well, at the end of the day, it's before a jury or a judge, and many of the juries, many of the judges don't have a practical back background in real estate, and the average reading level of a jury, depending upon the state that you're in, is between the 5th and the 11th grade. So unless you're writing a contract that a 5th or 11th grader can understand, if you don't have to say what this means is, then it's a better contract. If you have to say this means X, then already it's a bad contract. So we should be writing like E.B. White in shrunken white elements of style and not like, or like uh, Hemingway, and we should not be writing like Hawkins. 
We should not have a sentence that goes on for a page. We should not have a paragraph that goes on for a page. We should write clear and concisely for a jury. And that means that we have to reinvent documents and we have to rethink documents. And that's what I try to teach my young members. And, and do you think that um, those are all great, great points? And for those who remember E.B. White, you know, we'll see how many can, right, from our old law review days and everything. But do you think that your part of that advice is when you say what kind of contracts, and I love the advice that you will give people a form until they do some homework on their own, that the drafting is um, more to one side or the other or more to the middle of the middle of the field? You know, you, have, you draft for the client and you, dra you draft for the deal. And we all have the lessor form and we have the lessee form. But if you're experienced enough, you know when you get it, which form you're looking at and what has to be changed. And if, you, if you've done this enough, you know what deals, what points you're going to give up on and what points you need to negotiate and what points you need to deal with. And I think we all find, and I, I know you find this, Jay, and others find this, is that if what you talk about is language, you lose. If what you talk about is concepts, you win. It's not that I like your language, I don't like your language. Let's talk about how we resolve this issue. How, where's the risk to lie? Where's the solution to be? And then once we have that discussion, then the language can follow. Uh, I, I love your first point there that you draft for the client, right? Because I have often told people that, you know, we it's not a, we're not the client, right? We have to draft for the client. And if the client wants you to draft, to the tough end of the one yard line and you can't do that, then you need to find somebody else to represent that client. And what I think we're going to see, and you're saying it right now, more and more forms are either AI generated or, or generated on a computer as if there is a one size fits all concept. And it's certain on certainly small deals, most, mostly one size fits all. But once you get into anything that's complex, or an issue that may require deeper thinking, the one-size-fits-all form should be a starting point, but not an ending. Right. And, and assuming, hoping, right, that all, all parties at the table have the same goal, we're lucky enough to be in the transactional side of the business, most of, all the time for me, much of the time for you. Um, what, what do you think the most successful, you know, um, components are and advice would be for a to achieve a successful negotiation? Good question. First is, although we are negotiating at some level, we and I talk about this a lot in my speeches, negotiation at some level is misleading. The other side is to your bottom line. You don't want to put all your cards on the table at once. And I know I'm going to come in low and you're going to come in high if I'm talking about money or vice versa. And we also know that that's not our bottom line. And we both know that we're going to be maybe not somewhere in the middle. So I think the first part of negotiation is to be honest with the fact that you are puffing along the way and know that and, and enjoy that process, not get angry about it. It's not the other side. It's not your enemy. I mean, you're both there to achieve a goal. Your clients want to have a deal. So how is it that you're going to get to a deal that will satisfy both parties? And I think that's what we need to be talking about. So I want to talk about concepts, not language. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about this other pretty significant part of your life that I think most of us 
for surely me can't even conceive of how um, it, it, it gets done and fits in. But in addition to being um, a successful um, lawyer and uh, in multiple areas, as we've been saying, you've also within um, authored several books um, very successfully. Um, um, and and um, how did you decide to get started doing that? And, and I know that you do it at 4.30 in the morning and, um, and, and, and you don't sleep, but you, you've managed to publish two, I think, and your third is coming out, right? I have two no we have two novels and the first coming out, I've got about 11 nonfiction books. If you have insomnia, I can send those to you. Uh, they're all legal books. Uh, no, the, the, the two, are, one's a legal thriller that runs from the Civil War and the Civil Rights era, and it's done very well and been translated and sold overseas. And the other is a contemporary legal thriller that's been compared to John Cushing. And the third is coming out as soon as our agent played. Uh, well, they have a third coming out in March, which is a contemporary thriller set in Louisiana. We have a fourth at our agents in New York set in 1915 in New Orleans. But the way we do it is, you know, Fiction writers are often thought of as two different types. They're plotsers and pantsers, P-A-N-T-S-E-R. And a plotser plots everything out at the very beginning and knows what every chapter is going to be. And a pantser sits down and starts writing by the seat of the paints. And uh, we're kind of in the middle. We typically know, Anne and I typically know the key characters and what they want. We typically know the beginning and the middle and the end, but we don't have to get from the beginning to the middle of the end. We don't know all the sub-characters or the subplots. Uh, and that's the fun of writing. So we start writing and I do a first draft and then Anne does a second draft. And then we meet and talk about what the third draft should be. And it's never about the character would never say this because we know what the characters are going to do. And it's never going to be, why did you say this? It's, will this slow down the reader? And if so, it has to come so the goal is to keep the reader turning the page. Because unlike television, where you can kind of let it wash over you, you have to be active in reading. And if you're not interested and you're going to put the book down, then why write it? So we want to write it so that you keep turning the page. And, and how long does it take you from initial um, identifying the idea or um, to finish writing a book? Well, since we don't do this full time, it takes between a year and two years. Oh, that's interesting. That's right. And, and how, how much? You know, a lot of airplanes and in meetings and in the evenings and stuff. And, and tell us a little bit. I read about how you do your reverse outlines. So, some people outline in advance for continuity purposes. After I write a chapter, I'll put it on a spreadsheet as to what happened in that chapter. Very short, and that allows us as we go through the book to make sure we have continuity. Now. I'll, I'll tell you what, every writer we've been on panels with around the country, we do book talks at, at these book conferences, and every writer I've been with says everybody has a book in them, not everybody has a book finished. And the way you get a book finished is to write it without correcting. Once you've written it, you can fix it, but you can't fix it until you've done it. Well, the, re the reverse outline allows us at the end to go back and see the continuity. Oh, I didn't foreshadow this here, I needed to do this. Or there's too much foreshadowing here, I need to change that without having to reread the entire book. Got it. And we're like, were Grisham and Thoreau your, like, did you think about those guys? Is that what got you motivated or did you come about it for some other reasons? Uh, no, my mother was a writer. My mother uh, had a bunch of published articles in women's magazines, short stories and poetry over the years. She was an inspiration. 
Jim, my father wrote lit law books together, although she was not a lawyer. Uh, and my father was a great writer. And so and I was inspired by their examples. Uh, but Ann and I, he mentioned we walk at 4.30 in the morning. And, uh, you know, after you talk about what's been happening during the day, well, how do you keep yourself awake when we started making up characters and, and plots and making notes? So we still do that. Okay. And if, if you could sit down with any author, you know, living or dead, to talk about writing, who would that be? Well, I, I had three that I've thought about four, and one of them I actually knew. So it's Mark Twain, uh, who just wrote beautifully and, and cleverly. Uh, Charles Dickens, whose created worlds that you wanted to live in. I mean, a great writer creates a world where when you finish the book, you think, oh, it's great, I know the ending, and now it's terrible, I'm no longer in that world. And, and he created wonderful worlds. Uh, and Ray Bradbury, who was a, thought of as a science fiction writer, but also really, really was a writer of fantasy and literature. I don't know if people know this, but he also wrote the screenplay for Moby Dick, uh, the one that Gregory Peck starred in. And luckily, and I spent an afternoon at his house at some point with him, and he regaled us with school. That's it's terrific. That's just great. Well, please keep doing what you're doing because we we love re reading your books and and of course hearing your your amazing lectures on ethics and and multi-state practice, always punctuated by great music. And I should congratulate you again while we're on video on receiving the Fred Lane Award, um, which is the highest recognition in the college and was quite well-deserved for you and, and a wonderful seeing you get it both both on Zoom so in 2020, I guess, in 2021, and, and last week, last person in, uh, in Chicago. So that was great. Thank you. So, so let me let me close with just a couple of questions. Um, first, uh, I mean, you, you, you are the ultimate Renaissance person in so many ways for us and so many things that you've accomplished in your career. As you look back, what advice would you give yourself as a 25-year-old now, knowing everything you've done? Live more in the present. Um, you know, I was always looking ahead and what was the next thing happening. And sometimes you miss out on what's going on around you. And I think that I would have told myself it would be more Okay. Well, you seem to have done pretty well with that with some of the things you do now with your children and grandchildren, I know, uh, particularly during COVID as you taught them to play piano and, and bake. Um, and my, my last question would be, if you, um, at the next ACRO meeting in Charleston, if you could post a sign by the registration desk with a short piece of advice, what would it say? Take time to meet somebody new. That's what I advise. In fact, I tell my associates when they go to meetings of any organization, whether it's ACRO or ABA, real property section or anything else, I say, look, the goal of going to the meeting is not only to the camaraderie, but you ought to meet one person that you feel you can be a friend with. And if you come to a friend with that person, then the next meeting, each of you bring another friend into the meeting, and then you all, all of a sudden have a group. So I would tell people, make sure you meet somebody new at the Apple meeting that you haven't met before, and spend some time with them.
Great advice. Terrific advice. Michael, thank you so much for spending the time today and for sharing these insights about your fabulous, wonderful career and the things that you and Ann do together on the side. We really appreciate it and looking forward to seeing you at um, the next ACWA meeting. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate all the good questions.